Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hi, I'm Ryan Meeks, and after years of trying to make life work as a struggling artist, independent filmmaker, and musician, I thought to myself, hey, self, wouldn't it be helpful to ask other artists how they're finding their path in this world? And so now, that's exactly what I'm doing on a bi-weekly basis. Welcome to the Path of Art. Welcome to the Path of Art podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Danny Drysdale. So Danny Drysdale is a filmmaker from the Bay Area, the 515. 415. I knew there was a 5 and a 1 in it. 415 on the phone. They <laughs> the also phone called it 408. But I'm, I'm oh. originally from the 408, but I like the 415 okay. better. So is that, like a, is that like a thing there where they're like, well, I'm from this uh beginning part of the phone number. I can't even think what it's called. Area it's code. Called area code. <laughs> I'm from... I'm from the beginning part of the phone number. I'm from this area code. They Where are you from? just say that, you know. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, Danny, you eventually ended up making uh, music videos for The Killers, which is a pretty big band. So, so how, at a young age, did you end up getting interested in film? Um. Well, it's weird how I got to the killers, but before we get to that, I'll just say the first thing that comes to mind when anyone asks me that, usually it's Monty Python. That's what really got me interested in the idea of movies or comedy or anything that's like funny. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's I don't know why that's the first thing. I just think I I really like the way that they they did everything. And as a kid, I I really liked British humor. And I don't know if that's really connected. I just felt like uh, that was a a cool thing, you know, growing up. So, did you watch a lot of the it, the TV shows like the Flying Circus, or was it more the? Uh... Yeah, I watched some of that. Uh, I watched Holy Grail. I had this period in my life where I watched the Holy Grail every day for fifteen minutes, like after high, every day after school in high school, mm-hmm. and um, it was the way that I came down from the day. What I would consider. Like the absurdity of Monty Python was really good at deflecting the absurdity of high school. <laughs> right. Like to go from one to the other and just like learn to laugh about whatever teenage issues I was having at the time. So Yeah, there's also a rebellious nature to Monty Python films where it's just kind of going against the flow. Would you say that uh, that, is, that concept is at all related to who you are and your personality? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think I'm a true contrarian like, according to the definition, but I do think that I'm more prone to, um, I'll say I'm less interested in what other people are doing than I am, than I would be 
interested. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's uh, like not, like I'm not interested in copying anything. Like that's kind of been a thing, a problem basically. Like kind of just originality is is where you're is where you're pointed at. Yeah, and it's selective though because I do like people that are original, and then I kind of emulate them. So it's not like flawless. It's not like I'm just you know, saying I'm a complete nonconformist. That's absolutely untrue. But I do emulate people that seem to have built lives out of being uh, as much as themselves as like possible. And I'm only observing that now as I get older, mainly with musicians. I mean, what really got me into music video was just listening to music growing up and not really understanding that I was like watching music videos and understanding the bands because of the videos. So were you uh, at all into mu- music in terms of musicianship? Did you uh, play any instruments, write any songs, or do anything in that creative sphere before? Well, everything out? starts with Depeche Mode, basically. So I started listening to Depeche Mode when I was young enough to play G.I. Joe. So I'd be playing G.I. Joe listening to an album. And I went strictly on how that made me feel. And I associate that with like my sort of childlike behavior playing with toys. Um, And it really fit into that for some reason. I would listen to it on headphones while I was playing. And then um, the musicianship part of it came later. There was this whole period where, you know, I went through the musical evolution. So I went through like the ska era and like the 60s pop era, which evolved into this mod thing that I was doing. Uh, you know, 60s mod. And then I started getting in more and more into blues. And my friends and I just started a band. And that's kind of where uh, I turned a page as someone who might eventually become an artist of some kind. Because we were strictly doing that because we loved the style of the clothing. We loved the style of the music. And as we started to play more and more music and develop our own sound, we basically became a garage band that sounded very 60s. And we um, we did a lot of great things together. We toured. We put out a record all on our own, total DIY. Um, but in that setting, like, I was the drummer. And for, for I, you know, it was a practical reason for being a drummer in the band. Um. None of us knew how to play anything, so except for maybe piano or something from lessons when we were little. So we all picked up instruments and started our band, and that became a band. But I learned from that experience as in my teens that I, I didn't want to leave my artistic future or my expression in the hands of any other person. Because that band, even though those guys were my best friends, one of them decided to be a lawyer Another one just decided to start his own band. And then that was a pattern where we'd be in bands with people. And then like, I guess it's the age or something. People decide to be lawyers. It happened all the time. There were like three different occasions. It felt like all the time where they're like, I'm going to go be a lawyer. And it was always really weird. I like lawyers and I thought about being a lawyer myself, but. But it's not a band. Yeah. It's not as cool as being in a band. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed being in a band. Right. And I don't feel like those were mutually exclusive. Like you could do both, you know. But to be in different bands, like even through college, and have those bands continuously break up, and I'm just a drummer mm-hmm. because I was a drummer before, and I like playing. I also like listening to music, so when you're drumming, you get to listen, you know? Right. It's kind of a fun thing. Um, 
It's very fun, actually. So uh, after the last band broke up, I just made this internal, very clear decision that I was no longer going to engage in anything artistic that hinged on anyone else. And I think that was like a super important decision because it, it, it really gave me the, like I, I tasted the feeling of uh, doing something artistic or entertaining Mm -hmm. and then realized I love that more than zoology class. So it seems like to me, even you could, you can draw a comparison that you went from being a drummer in the back to being the front man of whatever creative endeavor you were taking on. Part of that was because I didn't understand how the film industry really worked. Um, yes, because I just thought the job you wanted to do was write, direct, produce. I didn't really know what producing was. But the jobs, those are the jobs does, you wanted to do. Does anyone know what producing is? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, painfully so. I mean, it's a, I love it. I actually love oh. producing. But, yeah, no, it takes a long time to figure out what that is and trying to explain what that is when you're not really in a system of any kind and there's mm-hmm. no reference material for it. And I sure wasn't going to go to film school. Why would I do that? That plays into the whole idea of not wanting to do what anyone else is doing. That just seems too obvious of a competition to me. Mm-hmm. That's really the way I behave is like like winning awards or, or um, going after prizes or money or this or that just doesn't seem very novel. Um, it, it seems like everybody's doing that. So I might as well just do what I do and like cross fingers, you know, like really hard. <laughs> right. There's a little more strategy, but. So indie filmmaking itself, um, I mean, it, it kind of is comparable to a band in some ways. I mean, you need you need multiple people to fill multiple parts. You need someone out there, you know, advertising for the band. You need someone to, you know, help uh, mix and edit the music. Um, in in these comparisons, did that ever help you along your way in indie filmmaking? Just the experiences that you've had with bands? Yeah, I mean, after gathering the resolve to just be a director. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is. Um, yeah, I mean, the the whole concept of teamwork and working kind of in concert, and I don't mean musically, but like working with people in a right. rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's an active part of what I do. Uh, of course, it's hard to build the best teams if you don't have the right kind of money. And um, so the, the teamwork sort of band dynamic. I mean, it's a given that you don't have any money when you're in a band. Right. I mean, unless you're big, right? I mean, nobody's like expecting to make, at least I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting to make any money at that. That wasn't really the goal. Yeah. But isn't that similar to when you're starting off in filmmaking? I mean, you start off with like your friends, you know, and you're just trying to make something that'll be at least half decent, right? Yeah. You need a good, you need a good network of friends, a really good partner, someone that has your back and uh, that can that understands why you're doing it, you know, or at least supports why you're doing it. It's hard to find that kind of support. But um, I've been very fortunate to have different kinds of patrons or helpers along the way, you know. Um, so, yeah, there is a correlation between that and. I mean, the reason why the band thing really was helpful, though, was when I started working with bands. Right. That was cool. 
because I had this innate like understanding of like what band dynamics are. Mm-hmm. Did that did that help you direct them better, or did it help you just uh, you know solidify the the contract, or what? What do you think it helped with? Most? I, I think there's intangible parts of it, like listening to the music and interpreting the music, and then writing the pitches. There's that element to it, which mm-hmm. comes from playing music in a band, and that's very powerful. Uh, when you do that for four or five years, and you're playing music together for many people, that dynamic is 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 powerful later when you're trying to pitch an idea to a song that somebody most likely put a lot of effort into to make. Um, so there's like a respect that I think comes from that uh, background that where they filters can, through, where they can see that you understand what's going on with their music. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, I take a stab at that. I mean, it's definitely my interpretation mm-hmm. and I, for years I had the hardest time pitching videos because I would do one a week or something and fall in love with the track because of that process. Mm-hmm. And it was usually very painful and I was just overly sensitive. And um, and then someone else would get the video and then I'd hear the song on the radio and I'd be like, oh, I wish I had been a part of that song because I really liked it mm-hmm. um, and presented the video for that song because I ended up having a little bit of a love affair with each song basically. But um, – I think just to kind of bring it back to what you're to trying to direct the question a little bit better, like what you're asking me, it's like I feel within the band dynamic, like when you're working with the band, there are things that you can take for granted that are hard to detect. And the band dynamic is just strange sometimes. I mean, you don't know, they don't always get along. You don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. And um, it's like a little club, right? that has like an agreement whether or not people are agreeing with each other. And uh, sometimes it's going great. Sometimes it's not. And, you know, with all the bands I've worked with, um, it's very easy to at least feel comfortable as a comrade, like feeling a camaraderie with the artist because I have been in, in that seat and I haven't, you know, I was never successful as a musician, like in the grander scheme of things, but certainly as like uh, someone who, Got to play a lot of music in front of people in really cool locations, like a total DIY sort of punk rock approach to everything. Uh, I felt like I could relate to artists, you know. And sometimes it backfires because they don't – it's like a secret power maybe or something. But nobody – if the bands aren't like that, then it doesn't work. (laughs) Right. So So if they're a little more structured, it kind of – it's just kind of a different uh, feel – for your workflow? Yeah, defining that's a little tricky. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I'm getting better at that now. I'm kind of like making better decisions about who I work with, actually, because um, it, it doesn't always fit. And I can kind of see ahead of time now because I've had some things go weird where I'm like, oh, I don't really – I don't know. I'm, do- I'm kind of dwelling on the negative. I'm sorry. We can go more positive. But I think it helps me discern like different dynamics by having having been in a band and – being careful about what band members might feel about each other, et cetera. So, yeah, I think I think that's a great take on it, and and it would make sense that you know uh, someone that has had experience in a band with a band, you know, making music would be able to gel better with those that are creating a music video. But on that note, we're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be back with Danny Drysdale, filmmaker from the Bay Area who has done music videos for bands like The Killers and some others that you may know of. We'll be right back. 
a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Path of Art. We're here with Danny Drysdale, and we're talking about his path that he has carved to be able to help bands make music videos, bands such as The Killers and uh, various other ones that we'll get talking about. But Danny, I want to hear about how did you get your first music video? How did that happen? Uh, Okay, that's a great question. That was a, a weird thing. I was trying to soundtrack a film and got a hold of some songs of some bands that I liked from a manager. And I uh, heard a song that I really liked that I was going to put on this film, the skateboarding documentary that is still not done. <laughs> hey, we all have those projects, We all have right? a skateboarding yeah. documentary that's not done. <laughs> <laughs> not done yet. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's a 300 hour archive of material. It's pretty cool. But anyway, we'll get back to that. So, Sorry, I had to plug it a little bit. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> so uh, I got the song. It's it's a weird story. I have this friend of mine um, named Jose Oliveira, uh, and he was a filmmaker in the 70s in Spain. And he made these fantastic uh, horror films. And because he had just become a member of the LDS church, he had infused like – deep Mormon doctrine into these horror movies. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I just said <laughs> horror, horror films with, with Mormon doctrine in it. That's, that's interesting. Phenomenal. I, I mean, uh, we tried, uh, we had this era where we were trying to finance a film through another partner and we would show those films to people to try and raise money and they were just all totally offended by <laughs> By it, and I, on the other hand, was like, "This is so fascinating." And Jose uh, was very clear about who he was as an artist, and very helpful—a mentor of sorts, not on purpose. But he um, he said he was trying to make films that competed with The Exorcist. Hmm. So, <laughs> and, I, so I guess that it was probably just the genre that he that he appreciated most. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and so he would he would integrate um, doctrines into the movies. Super cool. And so I'm watching his film. There's a dance scene in his film that's like this modern dance scene. Mm-hmm. I hear the song later, uh, separately, like oh, two weeks later, and I'm like, that song matches that dance scene. So I. And I think this goes back to um, my history in drumming. 
there's like this weird little thing where I was like, that totally goes with that. I feel like that would be a nice. So there blend. was kind of a click where where your where your brain noticed something that you you hadn't before, and then it, it kind of made sense of these two of, of these two things that seemingly um, to someone else just might not mix together. I guess I don't know. I mean, it just happened. I I like I. Saw I heard the song, I saw the footage in reverse order, and I was like, those two go together. So I called Jose and I said, can I borrow your movie? I ripped it. I edited the dance scene and some other material to the song and sent it to the band and said, can I do your music video? And I didn't even know them. I don't know who they are. So you essentially did their music video before asking them for it, just kind of like as a concept? Yeah, I mean, I don't even. No one asked me to conceptualize it. It was there was nothing like. No one said, "Hey, let's do a video." I had never done a music video. Why would I even think about that? I mean, it just matched up. So my thought was, this band's amazing, and I did really, and I do think that, and I'm still friends with them. Scissors for Lefty is their name, and my, I'm friends with Brian Garza, who's in that band, who was in that band, um, and everyone else. Anyway, um, so. Uh, I sent it cold with an edit with the song and uh, they wrote back and turns out that they were getting, they were in the middle of negotiating a deal with rough trade records. And I was like, Oh, well, yeah, let's do a video. Well, they got back to me two months later while I was on the set of Yo Gabba Gabba, the pilot. I had. So it, wait, you, you worked on Yo Gabba Gabba? I did. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. I was the, I know this is a weird one. My buddy called me and they're like, we need a first AD. And I was like, I don't even know what that job is, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's assistant director. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's an important job. I mean, someone explained it and I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that. So I first AD'd the pilot week of shooting Yo Gabba Gabba and I met Biz Marquis and hung out with all the characters. And is that the guy that's in the Aquabats? Biz Marquis? Yeah, there, no, there was no. a guy that's in the Aquabats. I don't know the Aquabats Christian. very well. His name's but, Christian. But yeah, there was a guy. Yeah, he's like the lead guy. Yo Gabba Gabba. Yeah, that's so. how I kind of know them because my band used to play with the Aquabats. Oh. And there's okay. just kind of this weird tie together there. All right. So uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm on the set of Yo Gabba. Mm-hmm. The band calls me. They're like, hey, we want to do a video with you. We were thinking, what if you put us in the video in this movie? I said, that's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. And then we met that week. Like I happened to be in Los Angeles because I was living in Utah. We got together, hit it off. Next thing I know, I'm getting paid to make a music video. And I had to go to Jose and say, Jose, can I please have your film, your original print, because I need to have it transferred. So I sent that to Seattle, had the film transferred for $5,000. So it, hmm. it, it exists. His film has a digital print because of this process. It's actually beautiful. So you you basically just put yourself out there, just sent it to this band, just with the hopes that they'll call you back, and then it turned into making money. You know, doing your doing uh, not making money, but no. Th- then it turned then it turned into like a, a job, a profession, a yeah. profession. Right? It was weird. I mean, I was always proud of the fact that I had never done a music video for nothing. You know, I, I mean, I still am. I've done things for like really low rates because I really want to work with the band since then, mm-hmm. but uh, not out of trying to build my reel. 
up until then I was doing documentary and um, yeah, it was just like a, a bold move. I actually think in hindsight, it was a producing stroke, not a director's stroke. Like look at the, the map here. It's like, go to this guy with a movie, license it. And, and what it really was in my mind was no one's ever seen this footage before. And it's super cool. It's this hidden movie. So that made it feel exclusive. And when I went to LA later, I was so naive. I'm like, Hey, I've got a great video. I need to, and it won an award, this video, uh, it's called, um, ghetto ways by scissors for lefty. It won these awards and all these things. So I, um, went to LA thinking I'd get repped. <laughs> and a lot of people thought that I had shot original footage and put the band in. Like they didn't understand that it was all like an old movie with the band. Right. Which was cool. <clears throat> and then they were like, well, you could just like edit movies for us and kind of get your feet wet. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to edit videos for you. <laughs> so that was like my attitude. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Just young and kind of rude, I guess. But I was like, why would I do that? I want to direct videos. I don't, I mean, of course they, that makes sense. Cause I've only done one video. There's no way they could have marketed me. <laughs> so, so basically, yeah. So your leap of faith was just sending that video off and that, where did that send you from there? Like, so you, you, you got this video, um, they, people loved it. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened next? Then I got another video. So that video was played, um, in England, got banned in England after seven o'clock. Cause there's like a weird scene in it where someone gets stabbed. It's weird. But it's after, like, after seven o'clock. Yeah. Oh no. What is it? It could only be played. So it could only be played after seven o'clock or something uh, like that. Huh? Or something happened where it couldn't be played before or after seven o'clock. I can't remember. Wow. That's interesting. Um, which was silly, but whatever. Uh, so that happened. Well, so and was then, Monty Python. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that was, it was pretty cool. And it was for rough trade, which was the label for the Smiths. And mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, this is like connecting in a cool way, like to music that I really love. And, mm -hmm. uh, it just felt really appropriate that that was my first video. Okay. Uh, but anyway, it let that, you asked how it like led to the right. What was the next uh, thing that you got? I did another video call, uh, for a band called the Envy Corps. Mm -hmm. uh, they were living in England at the time, and we did a spoof on um, this Japanese game show. And somehow that got in front of the Killers. Eventually, I, I actually went out to Vegas uh, to shoot for the Killers. Uh, this enemy express uh award was it just like footage of the award show or no it was like an acceptance video with them and mike tyson in a barber shop oh. and the spoof is that mike tyson hits brandon flowers in the face and he actually calls brandon flowers brian flowers it's really funny <laughs> <laughs> it's so good i mean from a it was funny that the first the entree into the killer's sort of like sphere was doing something spoofy or just kind of like a skit. Something like, silly and yeah, fun. Yeah, like a Monty Python style thing. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of tongue in cheek and ridiculous. And that was, that kind of got me in, that got me in front of them. Like they knew who I was suddenly. And um, that I was grateful for that. So when it came time to pitch music videos, they, they knew who I was, you know. I'm like, oh, he did this thing. I mean, I don't know what their logic is, but. I, you know, could be unicorns making the decisions, but, I, um, it, it, I think it just put me in front of them, you know? 
And so from there, when they needed a video next, was that when they uh, contacted you or? Yeah, they hit me up. I got I got a pitch from the management or like a brief from the management to pitch a video for the final track on Samstown album. If you're familiar with their catalog, their second album. And then uh, I didn't get that. And then like, I don't know. I don't know how long, how far later that was, how how much later it was. But it was long enough to forget that I'd done that other pitch. And I got uh, two songs in my inbox, in my email, Spaceman and Human. And they were both rough edits, which those edits are amazing. I still have them in my archive. Anyway, um, and I took to Spaceman first. I thought, oh, this is really good. I can, This is like my vibe. Um, and, um, but then Human, I conferred with my partner about it, and that seemed like the focal point track. So I started writing pitches on that, and I, at that point... I was really determined to get a killer's video if at all possible and I couldn't believe that I was like in the mix. So so did did your focus all of a sudden just shift toward that just for that that moment in time this became your main focus that you were trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean for that 2 weeks or a week when I had to submit a pitch, I just dropped everything and made two 10-page PDF files one per video to try and get a video. And my thought was these ideas could be completely wrong, but maybe the decks will be so cool that they'll be like, that guy is creative. So whatever's going on, we don't know if he's going to make a good video or not, but he's creative. Um, Maybe that will, I thought maybe that will have an impact. Just kind of like overload the system. Um, Seriously, that's what I was thinking. And uh, it's, I started to get traction with that. Next thing I know, um, I get a call that says that there are some paintings that are going to be delivered to my studio, the studio where I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just showed up. And I didn't even really know. I mean, I knew, of course, I have the video by then, right? But I wasn't. it wasn't really clear uh, because it was happening so quickly. And... I had to do a secondary pitch and then a third pitch. And I think what gave them the confidence to hire me was that I was able to bring in uh, director, of photography, director of photography, Dean Cundy. And are you familiar with who that no, is? No, who is, uh, who is Dean Cundy? So he was DP of Jurassic Park. Oh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that Dean Cundy. I know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Back to the Future. Okay, so that's a big name. Yeah, and I had a connection so this um i really that's what i mean i really wanted them to feel like it was a secure choice like even if i were were to direct the video i could totally mess it up but i've got this dp who has done all these movies and it's i mean how bad how bad can it be (laughs) so making them feel safe with the decision to go with you Mm. is part of that and then meanwhile in the background i was like going with what I was inspired to do. They wanted to incorporate the paintings into the video. And so I found these uh, 70s box lights that really 
seem very dangerous. Like you could start a fire very quickly if you turn them up all the way because they get very hot. I built these like are these boxes, these light boxes that we would use in the desert, and uh, just kind of the the concept kind of came together like as we were pitching it, and and then I just I think the Dean Cundy angle. That's funny. That could be a book, the Dean Cundy angle. I mean, it's got it's like a pun, but anyway, I think his, I think his involvement, and I, you know, bless him for being a part of it, um, really upped my game with them. You know, um, mm-hmm. and and he got paid more than anybody. And I mean, it was funny. It was like uh, it was weird bringing him in because we were all just kind of like a crew of people who didn't know a lot. I mean, well, then there's this guy with. Tons of tons of experience that's, you know, on set with you. Yeah. And that really like uh, affected the way that I viewed everything because suddenly I felt sort of the grace and uh, confidence of like true filmmaking, you know, Uh, it really taught me uh, the feeling of filmmaking because he brought it with him and it was so professional he was so professional and he was so um diplomatic and careful with me and treated me really well even though he was like miles ahead i mean i mean more than miles he's planets away so did you ever feel imposter syndrome while you were making this uh this uh music video to be sincere no oh i did not um because it took from the time I made my first contact with the killers, mm-hmm. it was a four or five year process to get to that moment. And I was working 6 a.m. nearly every day until 8 to 10 at night, working on different projects. It's not that I was completely clueless. It's like I knew I was on the edge of like understanding what I was doing. So I didn't feel like an imposter. I felt... um like I'd worked you felt really like you hard. were ready for the next step. I was completely. I mean, I I remember thinking after it happened going, well, if that hadn't happened, I mean, I don't think it, it couldn't have been good. My life couldn't have I mean, I don't know what would have what my life would be like. Um because I'd put so much risk into that into some kind of outcome like that. Financially, like with my relationships, um the payoff was so massive um but no i mean i was aware that I, I, that was my fear is like being in a situation where i just seemed like i was out of place but really i'm kind of learning on the edge and i have a rule that i've set for myself where i get each mistake once so uh i think that's how i've evolved is i only allow at least in my professional life each mistake once so there's certain mistakes that you can just make again and again and again and get nowhere. And uh, I just decided that I was going to allow myself to make a mistake and not be too hard on myself, but to take really, really copious notes mm-hmm. about why that went wrong and how to fix certain things. Right. There was this era after The Killers where I worked with IMX uh, with Chris Corner mm-hmm. uh, from Sneaker Pimps. And he had a band called IMX, which is basically him in a, in a band. And uh, I lived with them for a while, you know, off and on. I did a film about him and traveled to Russia and a bunch of other places with them on tour. And we did a documentary. We released it. um, They just re-released it, actually. 
And then at the same time, I started working with Ilya Lagutenka, who's a Russian artist. Uh, and he's more than that. He's an icon. He's an icon actually. And, um, I didn't realize that when I started working with him, I, I found him at a, uh, like at a, uh, an agency sort of like a meet and greet. Mm-hmm. And I heard them playing and there was a polar bear on stage. And I thought that's totally funny that they have a guy dressed up like a polar bear while they're singing and it's all in Russian. <laughs> it was very funny. So he and I had a, a great meetup and he knew about my work with the killers and, um, I had seen it from Russia or from wherever he was at the time. And so we started, we made a film together, which is on, which is actually on Amazon. It's about him. It's like a, a yellow submarine meets like, uh, a spinal tap kind of show about his band breaking up. It's pretty funny. <laughs> that that does seem humorous. That's uh that's what the uh the reviewers or the uh critics in uh in Russia called it. It was like yellow submarine meets spinal tap. Huh. From there, I mean it I I uh ended up most recently doing a scripted series uh for my buddy's company, like a CBD company called Hello Lo-Fi and that's like Miami Vice meets Anchorman or something meets meets Monty Python super fun project uh very 90s late 80s kind of look and and so you like to incorporate humor into your projects a lot yeah i mean i if i can i mean what i'm actually i'm wrapping a film right now uh, about Abraham Lincoln and that has been more sobering than funny but mm-hmm. But powerful. Yeah, I can't imagine you can uh, incorporate a lot of humor into uh, a Lincoln. To, is it a documentary? Yeah, or? it's a documentary. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, unless he was cracking a joke himself. But apparently, he had a satire that was uh, uh, offensive to people. <laughs> that he he did have a, a biting humor, as they yeah. say. Isn't that the point of satire? I think so. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I'm guessing the people that wrote about it back then probably had something to say that was probably more negative than positive if they were being satirized. So, so in this hello lo-fi thing is is that a uh, it's it's about CBD oil and no no they're just a product placement in it. Oh okay, product placement. Yeah, and so it it what what kind of um, what kind of I, I don't know not genre but like is it is it a film is it a uh, it, right now it's a web series. Um, we are pitching it around right now though, um, to possibly turn it into a show. Mm-hmm. So we have enough content. We have 60 minutes of content to build a pilot episode. Mm-hmm. So we're playing around with that idea right now. And, uh, yeah, it's my, uh, my agent has it and that's what's happening. So what advice would you give to anyone that is starting out in the film industry? Um, uh, well, I would say... <laughs> that's such a broad thing. What's worked for me is to pinpoint what my voice is. And if it's not coming naturally, then you'll have to do that. But I, you know, I think about why I create something and I, I don't quite understand. There just seems to be an insatiable desire to just continuously do it. Um, But I think one of the most simple pieces of advice is to stick to your guns as an artist. 
And, and and by that you mean sticking to like who you are, what your vision is, your flavor of of filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, um, and and like don't compete in like a similar. Don't compete. Just create. I think it is about competition, but uh, there's very little time and control in just trying to compete with everybody when you don't really understand the rules and you don't really know what's running. Like who's making what decisions? If you don't know those people, then it's better to assert yourself as an artist and as someone that knows what they're doing. It gets tricky though because I just said stick to your guns, but there also has to be a level of professionalism where you can actually be like you can sit in a meeting and have a discussion with someone and understand work collaboratively with people. Yeah, yeah, and I think it depends on the projects and like the scale of the projects. So don't waste time, you know, like. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's don't waste time. Like get on it. <laughs> I think that's some good advice because it's it's easier to, you know, when you're a creative person, I mean, it, it's easier to think of these things and just uh, take it as the, you know, when you, when you don't have a success, right? It's easier for you to, you know, just think that maybe it's just not going to work out and I should go get a corporate job, you know? Ooh. And, uh, I think I think a lot of us end in end up in that situation. And so I think your advice there is really strong. You can low key stuff like that though. I mean there's tons of things that I work on that I don't like brag about, you mm-hmm. know. I mean there's you got to make you got to make bread, right? right. You got to make It's not just about like your career. It's also about the people that you love and these people that and your team of people it's not just about your vision, but uh, there's something to be said about just being very tenacious. And usually when you're ready to quit is when you need to like step it up a notch, right? Unfortunately. Yeah. That's, that's what I feel. It's not, there's been multiple moments where like I've quit in my mind, but haven't stopped. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, or I've said, I've said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I wait like 30 minutes and then I move forward. Because it helps me, I guess, to say in my psychology to say, I'm done so that I can continue because it's just sometimes a lot of mind over matter. So, Danny, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been great just talking with you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Path of Art. If you or someone you know is creative and would like to tell your story, reach out to me at rmeeks at ksl.com. I might feature you on the show. If you liked our conversation, please make sure you follow the show and give us a five-star rating and review. It really does help people to discover the show. Also, make sure you follow the Path of Art podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. 
You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.